Hi there and welcome to Plant CEO. In today's episode, I'd like to welcome Bjorn Witt, the CEO of Blue Horizon, and Malte Clausen, the partner and associate director at Boston Consulting Group. Hey guys, how are you doing? Good, good. Great to be on the show, Anna. Thank you for inviting me. And Bjorn, you're currently in Zurich in Switzerland, where you're based. That's correct. In beautiful Switzerland. And Malte, you're just outside Copenhagen in Denmark, right? Yes, that's exactly right. Sunny day in Copenhagen. Great. So together, both your companies have launched a report called the Untapped Climate Opportunity in Alternative Proteins. Bjorn, what are the top three highlights that you would like the general public to know about? I think the, the top, top highlight is actually the title of the study. It's the untapped climate opportunity of alternative proteins. But uh, to drill one level down, I think from an investor perspective, there is no other field where you can have so much impact created to be investing in than in our space. So the first big highlight is we have actually drilled down and found the first time some numbers to show the impact of capital employed versus other industries like cement and others. It's much higher if you invest that capital employed into our industry. That's the first highlight from an investor side. On the other side, number two is from a consumer perspective. Uh, we looked into first time global over 3,700 um, consumers and found out that what are the main prohibitors to, to be accelerating into this industry a bit more? Or what are the big, big things on the heads of the consumer? And health actually is one of the big ones. So we found that um, we, we believe that a lot of people are very much aware of the health and health uh, in food is one of the main drivers in the future for our industry also. And I think last but not least from a consumer perspective, you know, more people would go animal-based free or plant-based or um, alternative proteins if they would get a little bit more insights on the real impact of that food. So I think the three highlights are ultimately the impact on capital, uh, on capital employed and from a consumer perspective, really the health issue and uh, the sustainability issue. Yeah, one of the things I found really interesting in the report was when you compared the investments and savings into emissions when moving towards plant-based proteins and comparing it to other things like cement and iron and steel. I think it's really important that other investors know about that too. Absolutely. And the, the numbers are mind-blowing. It's like 3x, three times more impact of investing in our space compared to cement. Yes, that's insane. And Malte, in an interview with The Guardian, you said that a move towards plant-based proteins could help alleviate the food crisis that we're currently in by cutting out the middleman. Um, can you explain that idea further? Yes, definitely. So, so the point here is that in, in the animal-based food systems, uh, there's a lot of input required uh, in terms of crops just to feed the animals. So the conversion, uh, you could say, is quite inefficient. You have to, even for chicken, which is generally considered one of the more, more efficient ways of, of converting crops to, to, uh, to an end product, you need at least four, four to seven times um, the amount of, of input in order to have the final uh, chicken product uh, compared to if you just take direct, uh, direct to consumer using the, uh, the crop directly for human consumption. So, so it's just, this, uh, like I said in that Guardian article, it's just the simple mathematics of it. 
rather than having one to four, you have you have one to one. You cut out the animal, which is the middleman, whether it's chicken or cow or or fish or pig or whatever it may be, and uh, and use the crops directly for human consumption by using less crops. Uh, obviously, less crops are needed, and that just puts less uh, constraints or less strains on the uh, on the overall resource requirements and the overall food system. Yes, completely. And I guess what you're considering there is also the amount of land being used by animals grazing, plus uh, additional land being used to grow crops in order to feed them. So in in other ways, if that land was freed up, we could alleviate this food crisis. That's a great point. And and that's actually a very important nuance to to capture as well. When we talk about the land required uh, for for the animal-based food system, it's uh, and the deforestation that is associated with it, it, it's it's actually two aspects, right? It's cutting down trees to have area for those animals to graze, and then it's it's similarly uh, an an area that is required to grow the crops for those animals. So you need so you have both of these strains on the system uh, that are that are then reduced by moving to a plant-based or an alternative protein system. Mm -hmm. And on the health side, people definitely want to change for their health and the taste. But currently, the report suggests that health and nutrition are the main inhibitors to a greater consumption. What specific work still needs to be done to remove those barriers, would you say? Maybe I can jump in on this one. You know, for me, a product I can buy today on the shelf, and I'm always quoting it's an iPhone 5, right? From a consumer perspective, it's really not an iPhone 13 yet. And I know people when we have meetings where you know have an iPhone 7 or 10 on I don't know anyone with an iPhone 5. So what is whatever am I suggesting? I'm suggesting that the four basic principles of food need to be fulfilled until the mass adoption curve really picks up what we've seen in other industries. So the four things are actually taste, 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 taste is number one. So taste, you know, the, the, otherwise people don't buy it again. The second one is, you know, availability. So unless it's a mass market, you can't really buy it. So it's, it will never create impact as a, as a concept, but it's, it must be available. But if you are in a mass market, you need to play the rules of a mass market. So, you know, you also have to have speak about the price. So the price point needs to be at a level where people can afford it. And actually, that's also what the study suggests to, to cross that bridge. You know, if you offer a premium price, you have to have a premium brand value proposition, which is sometimes today in some of the products, not the case because of health to, to go back. And the fourth one, so the first one is, you know, taste. Second one is availability, mass market price. And the fourth one is actually trust. So you need to trust the product and uh, that will not only count for the plant-based products where we are today, uh, but also for fermented products, hybrid products, and products we'll see in the future, which will be cell-based or a mix of uh, a blend of thereof. So I think these are the main points which, which need to work, but we're in a transition. And as we speak, some of our portfolio companies and as we rise within 78 uh, investments by now in the last six years, so we do see the iPhone 7s, 8, 9 coming in the lab and they have a go-to-market route and um, they're, they're, they're coming. And uh, therefore, it's a very, um, very uh, exciting time to be, to be investing in this space and, and following supporting these companies because we strongly believe that this transition will help um, um, the, the health issue also. And we do see a lot of products with clean label 
with um, a lot of um, focus in the R&D and the new product development following that path of, of, of cleaner products. As I said, it's, there's no silver bullet. You can't have everything clean, then you should probably eat just a vegetable. But if you want to follow the rules of the mass market, be in the categories that have been developed over the last 30 years, you have to open um, the thinking and say, okay, iPhone 5 or iPhone 13, 14, maybe next week, and it's getting there. Yep. And one of the things that you mentioned there was about trust. And do you think we need to do a better job as an industry when talking to end consumers, especially from a marketing perspective? For example, the new CEO of Impossible Foods has actually said they could have done a lot better job at that communication with their consumers. Absolutely. I think that's a big education. And I think um, I, I seldomly speak about you know, disruption. I think it's really a transition. So we need to embrace the existing companies, also the big food corporates, you know, they need to take their share of uh, category marketing and, and managing there. But I think ultimately it boils down to say, do we, do we, if we brand a product, and today there's no brand in real meat globally, it doesn't exist, right? But if we want to brand and take the opportunity to actually deliver a brand promise to consumers on a branded product, which resembles an animal-based uh, protein, I think we need to be very careful in establishing that and be very careful not to, to uh, in, in the very beginning, and we believe we're in just in the very beginning of that transition, we need to bring these portfolio companies, but also the whole industry needs to be very careful how to label, where is it really, um, you know, irritating consumers, where is a protein level, I think, especially in the US, there's been quite some discussion around that, how do you declare certain things? But ultimately, I think on the other side, we need to be careful also not to exaggerate because if people, uh, you know, come to me and say, yeah, and, you know, and there's a long ingredient list and it's not healthy and the trust is not there, we thought we eat something very healthy. I always say, you know, take a piece of chicken and think how much antibiotics and growth hormones went into that chicken. And then compare that to a plant-based chicken, which is, by the way, today, you know, a good alternative, at least according to a lot of the big fast food chains who move into that direction um, for, for various reasons. We probably will talk about it later, but I think um, that's sometimes misunderstood that an ingredient list actually is something that you don't have on a piece of meat, which you probably should have. Yes, that's a very good point. And in a way, maybe those comparisons, especially on the health side, need to be made between you know plant-based proteins and meat uh, especially with the ingredients and things like antibiotics that are in there i know some of those things have actually been highlighted in different documentaries but i think we need to do a better job at that right yes absolutely <laughs> so thinking about the capital invested in alternative proteins it's been rising at an annual rate of 124% in a two-year period. That's from uh, $1 billion in 2019 to $5 billion in 2001. And that's according to the Good Food Institute. What are your projections for this year, considering the slowdown in investments and also the decline in stock price for companies like Beyond Meat? Um, what are your views on that? I think what we see is that there has been a tremendous growth in investing. It is a transformation. If you take other industries like electric or vehicles or electric mobility, and you look at their curves and you know there were some setbacks, and but 
our industry is always eight years behind that. If you take average deal size and amounts of um, invested capital. So if, you know, there definitely will be a bump. Uh, I think that's, that's clear, but it also depends on what you really bring into the, the, the sum of that number. Um, we believe we're just in the beginning and we'll see a big increase of investing investments in the space for various reasons. Impact, as we just described, there's a big impact mandate for a lot of uh, also public um, uh, institutions to, to be moving into a space where you, you want to create impact. And as we've just shown with our study with BCG that this is the best place to, to, to put your money for, for that. Um, but I think um, the ultimately we are um, at a two percent penetration of alternative proteins to to total volume of of, uh, of proteins, and we expect that. And actually, last year's study we we looked at that first time, and this year we reconfirmed that number from a different angle, from more from the consumer side, that we believe that this penetration rate will go up to between eleven and twenty-two percent over the next ten years, which is a ten x growth, which is amazing. And this will require a lot of capital. And the capital required will not only go into tech, but also into infrastructure, which is one of the biggest, um, I would say, roadblocks. You know, we get a couple of thousand of inbound decks yearly, especially in the earlier stage um, uh, from the industry to be looking at. And, you know, if you put all of that next to each other, you just say, where, where, where's the infrastructure to scale up? And I think scale up is the big, big thing. And scale up requires capital. And despite the opportunities we have with using existing uh, infrastructure, which has been built, say fermentation tanks potentially, and in, in, yeah. you know, in other industries, but in the food industry or other industries, I think this will require a lot of capital. The check sizes are increasingly going up. Um, we only seeing one uh, of the two um, companies which which are public, which is Beyond Meat. I think they have their own story, and uh, I, I don't want to compare that to, to tech stocks who have suffered um, uh, the same That's way. Well. Yeah. yeah, but uh, I think the uh, N equals one. Uh, okay, only N equals two, but it's a different category. So I think the, the underlying uh, message we have, it's a fantastic time to invest as investors right now. Uh, we, 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 we see a great pipeline of opportunities for the scale-up. And we believe um, there's a massive opportunity and we do see more and more capital going into the space. There's been a general slowdown in the investment market uh, here during this year, but, but actually less so for alternative proteins. So when you compare the slowdown overall, when you compare that at a sector level, there's actually been less of a slowdown in alternative proteins. So in relative terms, you could say that that sector has actually been strengthened uh, during 2022, at least so far. So that's just uh, a nuance that's also important to keep in mind. So are we likely to dramatically increase the amount invested if you're comparing it was 5 billion in 2021? I believe so. Maybe not, you know, you don't frame it on this 12 months, but uh, ultimately right. we are at the at brink of having more and more money flowing into the space. Imagine, you know, everything we've, we've seen in and sustainable energy, you know, once we have future guaranteed cash flows in our industry, there will be a massive amount of, um, uh, of influx of capital, uh, which will be invested in infrastructure and supporting our industry to grow. Mm. 
And on the actual report, what have the investor community been talking about in terms of the findings in the report? Yeah, so I can speak a little bit to that. Obviously, uh, part of our role uh, with, uh, in my job as uh, in BCG is to advise corporations and investment firms on, on investment strategy. So I've met with a number of investment firms and uh, discussed the report. And overall, there's just great interest in this topic. It's all We did a report last year as well with Blue Horizon, obviously, uh, the, the first uh, edition of the Food for Thought report back in, in the spring of 2021. And um, both last year and this year, this is one of the most downloaded reports uh, that, that we do. So there's great interest in this. At the same time, there's also uh, still a bit of surprise, especially on the uh, the impact of, of capital employed that, that Bjorn mentioned, that this is such a great opportunity for, uh, for decarbonization. So so in my experience, it's, it's a combination of, of interest uh, it's a hot topic, obviously. Lots of people, including the investment community, is very interested in this topic. Combined with uh, still a bit of surprise that you know this is uh, this is such a great opportunity from a climate perspective. And here, of course, we need to continue to to explain what we discussed earlier with deforestation, the specific composition of greenhouse gases. It's not just CO two; uh, it's also nitrous oxide, it's methane, and it's the, it's the these very potent. Uh, greenhouse gases that have uh, an, an outsized effect. So all of this together, uh, of course, we need to continue to explain to the investment community. But but in general, interest and uh, and curiosity to learn more. What can we do to move the needle, especially with the big funds? And if you think about the big funds being the government pension funds or private pension funds that are investing more with public markets and are quite traditional in their approach where we want them to invest into plant-based proteins, especially when it requires a lot more capital. You know, if you're looking at fermentation tanks and, uh, you know, what Bjorn was saying there about cell-based proteins and the research that we need to do there, etc. Yes, of course. Uh, we will always start with looking at the individual pension fund and look at what is their investment strategy. And of, and of course, they need to to achieve both uh, a specific level of financial returns in addition to contribute to the green transition or, or the decarbonization of, of, the, uh, of the economy. And then what those investments, uh, what are the right, right investment to achieve that will be a, combina a combination of, of various uh, assets. And alternative proteins can, can definitely be a big part of that story. Uh, so that would be you know, the starting point. And then you would look at how can you achieve that. Of course, investment funds, I don't see any limitations why, why they wouldn't be able to um, invest in alternative protein investment uh, funds, like, for example, those of Blue Horizon or any of, any of the other players in, in this space. Uh, that, that, would, that would be, uh, in my view, pretty, uh, pretty straightforward. But it, of course, it has to fit with the overall investment strategy of that pension fund and what they're trying to achieve. So that's how we would approach that. Maybe, maybe I'd just add to that. I think what's interesting right now is the change of the risk profile. I mean, anyway, it's uh, all risks are changing globally. And with the um, energy crisis, the water crisis, there's a lot of pressure on, on the food system. And what, what we are seeing is in our deal pipelines, especially in the growth strategy, 
but actually that's increasing and there's a couple of billion of, of, of growth opportunities with a very different risk profile because the industry is maturing. There are companies who have a very, I would say not zero, but limited or more limited tech risk and are not exposed to the brand risk right now in these changing consumer behaviors. So what I'm saying, there's an opportunity in a B2B space when you look at the full value chain of, of food, when you start on AgTech, you do a biological crop protection, you do uh, you know, precision fermentation for ingredients, or you just solve new, new things with gene editing, um, uh, where you have big topics which you solve, and suddenly you have companies who have done their homework, who have uh, had their, their, you know, their history and real numbers, and then suddenly you're able to invest into them and pick them and put them together in a way that you have a very um, matching risk profile uh, to, to some of the institutional investors. And you know, I don't think that would have been the case three or five years ago, uh, but right now it's happening and we'll, we see that. And uh, I think um, for investing it anyway, it's a great, great time to invest in this vintage uh, because it's, it's, it's just a good, great opportunity if you know where to invest. Yeah. So do you think investors will be investing more into companies that have got some ability to protect their R&D uh, IP that they've invested in versus companies that are purely more on the brand play? For us as Blue Horizon, we, uh, we look more and more upstream. Um, the, uh, the chance of getting the single brand which will make it. Uh, if you look into the US, for instance, there are over 220 brands and chicken nuggets plant-based. So I, I think there is there will be a consolidation for, for good reasons. Um, and I think especially focusing on the B2B upstream or a strong tech, uh, tech sec angle uh, in the companies along the full value chain. So it's still a, a very, very big market. Is, uh, is a prime focus of us um, looking in, in, the, in the space and together with uh, the Boston Consulting Group over the last years nearly now we've developed this quantified market model where we really look at the full value chain we look at the key technologies and say what are the main drivers of cost when do we believe on which assumption uh, which technology will impact certain you know costs and profit pools and where where is that shifting and why and uh, it's very clear for us that um, it's a very interesting space to be looking into the b2b space yep and one of the other things that was highlighted in a report was trying to get consumers to uh, even switch away from eggs was a challenge um, with now there's so many alternatives in the market globally what still needs to be done and when are we likely to reach a price parity? I could probably speak the full podcast only about egg and plant-based. <laughs> really yeah. into that. I think there's a, there a couple of aspects to egg in principle. Egg uh, is considered a clean protein from a consumer perspective. It, it comes in a shell and people really like that as a sort of the real egg. Um, <clears throat> there, it, It's difficult to... Um, from a cost perspective on the cost curves, whatever you do outside to, to get the, to the same um, cost level for a final product. And it is not a, an easy product as a consumer to be replacing because it's not a hero product. What I mean by that, if you go to you know, a, a fast food chain and you buy a, a Whopper with a certain brand name in, in there, 
uh, <clears throat> then the patty is the hero, but nobody would pay a premium if you add a plant-based egg. So you pay that for the, the burger patty. So per se, it's a difficult um, uh, category in certain elements. However, uh, egg also comes not only as a table egg or a final product, it comes also as an ingredient. And mm -hmm. that world is different because ultimately there's certain functionalities tied to an egg, which today can be replaced with plant-based or you know, fermented um, uh, proteins. And I think there, there will be a clear drive to, again, scale up and certain solutions where you do have opportunities to replace those eggs um, in, on, as an ingredient at the right price point. Yeah. So it's, a, it's, a, it's not as clear as with other protein replacements, I would say, um, uh, on the egg space. But uh, I'm very optimistic that it will play a big role. And it's also, by the way, very impactful. People always think it's only you know, the coal of, 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 um, of meat is beef, the red meat. That's so bad and it's you know, very bad in terms of impact. So people focus on that. But uh, it's, also, you know, it's, it's also the sum of the, of the amounts, sheer amounts, which make a difference. And eggs, as we've shown in another report, has also a very um bad impact on the planet in terms of water usage you know greenhouse gas emissions if you calculate that through so there is a big impact and there's no alternative to alternative proteins because ultimately looking at even switzerland where i sit if we if we were to become 10 billion people one day and everybody ate like the swiss we would still need three planets uh, to produce that food uh, in today's uh, setup, and as the Americans would probably need five planners for that. So I'm saying, let's look at the whole thing, but let's prioritize. And I think egg would probably not be number one today, but uh, they're good alternatives. And it all boils down to, as a consumer, to the taste. And if uh, the taste is not there, the trust is not there, the brand is not there, to have a clean protein as a replacement egg, I think it will be not as evident as like we've seen with burgers or with chicken replacements. And do you think consumers are actually looking to have an alternative egg with a shell? Sort of. It's like, you know, my, my four and five year old daughters, when they sit down and they eat a, in Swiss they say a poulet, right? A chicken um, and it's plant-based and they, they already talk about this category as if they would have learned it for 30 years. So it's uh, the behavioral change of consumers is the most difficult one. Also, especially in eating, it's an emotional thing. So if you just have the shell uh, and you want to crack it open, this gives you the, the feeling of it being very clean and, um, and, and, and protected. I think that's, that's a big thing, but I don't think we, we have to replicate everything um, to go back. And, you know, I don't want to have a T-bone steak and put the, the tea in there. Uh, on a meat replacement, we don't need that. And the same thing, maybe we don't need it for, for an egg, but then we need to be very um, differentiating on the markets of eggs. It's not egg, egg is quite big as a market, very different consumer behaviors. Is it scrambled? Is it you know, more in the breakfast menu? Is it um, uh, as a bakery ingredient? So it's, it's very different applications. But I think ultimately we will see great products with great functionalities being very clean and healthy um as we we already see in the market but also there we're not yet at an iphone 12. Mm -hmm. yeah and multi let's move to government policies 
the UN has projected that 55 gigatons of greenhouse gas emissions will be released in 2030 without any government changes to their policies, whereas alternative proteins have the potential to eliminate up to 6.1 gigatons of emissions. Um, that's a huge amount, but it's also a huge amount of money that can be saved. Can you talk a little bit about that saving? Yeah, sure. So, so obviously, we all know that that food and, and agriculture is is one of the uh, the larger sectors, uh, almost you know, almost matching the uh, the energy sector when it comes to to emissions. So, I think everyone recognizes there is great great opportunity here. Um, or a very important challenge, uh, however you want to see it, in, in reducing the emissions of, of the agricultural sector. And there are different ways of doing that, but uh, what we would say actually is that the alternative protein opportunity is just the most straightforward. There's also regenerative agriculture and other agricultural practices that you can apply and that you should apply. But compared to the investment opportunity and, and the maturity of the alternative protein industry, it's actually just a matter of, of governments uh, doing more to support that industry. If they want to reach the targets that are set out in the Paris Agreement, it, there are many ways governments can, can support that. Uh, and we wrote about this in the report as well. So just to name a few, uh, that would be economically beneficial. Um, one is to, uh, to realign subsidies. The animal-based uh, system is already getting a lot of government subsidies. Uh, and that is actually detrimental uh, to, to the Paris Agreement. So just shifting subsidies more towards plant-based alternative protein would be an, uh, you know, one obvious thing to do. Then there's the whole um, area of procurement uh, within the public sector. The public sector is a big purchaser of animal-based uh, products, uh, both in, in the uh, educational space like schools and, and high schools, universities, etc., and in the, in the healthcare industry. Um, huge, you know, thousands and thousands of meals being being served every day, and that would be a very uh, natural step for uh, for governments to just shift the consumption and the spend more towards alternative proteins. The example we just talked about with the eggs is a good example of that, right? Because it's also a way to normalize these products. For many consumers, it's still very foreign to think about, you know, plant-based chicken or plant-based egg. Like, what exactly? What, what exactly is it, you know, is it processed, is it not processed, all of these questions. So just by meeting them every day in the canteen will, uh, will mean that you have much more, um, uh, much more familiarity and becomes normalized. So those are some of the examples uh, where governments could, could easily um, move the needle. And then the, the final point I would, I would mention is just in terms of labeling and how do you name these products, how do we label these products? We also see a lot of um, differentiation in terms of how governments are dealing with that all over the world. And where some uh, governments are doing a great job in making it easier for, for plant-based uh, and alternative protein companies to, to market their products, other governments are putting more constraints. And that will have a, a big effect as well on, uh, on the viability and the commercial success of the companies within that space. So those are some of the things we highlight in the report that are pretty much just um, something that governments can do. And it's very important here to also mention that the products are in the market. Like sometimes when we talk with about alternative protein and, and what can we do about agriculture, 
we talk about agriculture as being a hard to abate sector, which it, it may be in, in one sense, but at the same time, we would say, well, actually, the products are mature now. They are in the market. They are being consumed every day, unlike some of these other investments that are required in cement and steel and some of these other sectors. There's still a lot of technological development required. And of course, that's also the case for alternative proteins. Their products need to get better, but but they are actually in the market right now, and you can just you can just purchase them right. as a consumer, and you can support it uh, from a government perspective. So that's that would be to sum up on the uh, how governments should look at this if they want to reach the Paris Agreement. Yep. So we should definitely all be supporting those alternative products. And when you're thinking about, especially the point around subsidies, which country is really leading the way on that? In the report, what we did is we, we mapped out what are the most recent regulatory changes. And, and of course, there are examples like, for example, Singapore has, has approved uh, cell-based meat, uh, yeah. quite, famous, quite famously. And um, Israel is, is working on that. I, I heard one of your most recent interviews with the TFI in, in Israel. Uh, what's happening on that front. So there are definitely certain countries that are moving faster than others. Um, some, in some cases, out of necessity because they are smaller countries and they have, you know, they have a need to be more self-sufficient and they don't have a lot of agricultural land. So, so they, they are more innovative in that sense. Um, and then there are other countries that are you know, taking it a little bit slower. Uh, but, but overall, you know, the, the, the trend is, is only moving in the direction of long -term, the long-term trend is moving in the direction of shifting more and more towards alternative proteins. And then you know, there will be fluctuations at a country level. But that's the overall trend. And we try to highlight in the report some of the most, some of the most famous examples and, and what will shape industry, of course, what happened in Singapore, also what's hap what happened recently in China with, um, the, um, with the announcement and the inclusion in the five-year plans. These are some of the highlights that we bring out in the report as, as potentially being industry shaping. Mm -hmm, for sure. And if you think about the countries that are making slower progress, for example, Henry Dimbleby, who's the co-founder of Leon Restaurants and the Sustainable Restaurant Association, was commissioned by the UK government. And his findings was that the UK needs to reduce their meat intake by 30% over the next 10 years. And Greenpeace, for example, would have a bigger number saying 70 percent um so there's a lot more to be done yeah that's that's lots to do and uh and of course uh, governments have a huge role to uh to plan that and i, I think it, it's all of the stakeholders coming together governments investors uh consumers all of these uh startups all of the players need to uh to, to work uh, in alignment to move the sector forward. So that's that's what we need to see. Mm -hmm. And Bjorn, you were quoted in The Veg Economist that there's at least 295 billion market cap at risk among public food companies who lag behind this protein transformation. So it's a great opportunity for new or existing companies to transform. Who are some of those biggest public food companies that you are referencing to? So... That was a different study we actually did uh, in partnership with MSCI last year uh, as Blue Horizon. And what we did, we took our data and combined it with uh, the idea of 
of looking into the different risk profiles along the value chain and from the climate change and what's the role of, of uh, our the, the protein transformation in the net zero economy. Uh, so we looked at 485 companies and uh, I think 46% of them were actually exposed to alternative proteins already. So 225 out of these 400 uh, of the 400 companies. And of course there were globally listed companies. Um, our challenges in our industry that uh, besides Beyond Meat and, and, and Oatly, there are no big companies which are actually listed, which are pure play in our industry. So we had to look, and that's actually why we did it. We, we you know, also to influence policymakers and to help uh, corporates to go in the right direction. We said, okay, if you don't disclose, and there's no real standard today, if you don't disclose um, the, the numbers of um, alternative proteins, what you do there, how transparent are you in your activities? Actually, just from the supply chain risk, there's a big, um, uh, uh, you know, big risk uh, of two, over 295 billion in market cap for these companies. So I won't be picking out single companies uh, on that, but um, out of uh, was a sufficiently big number of companies globally we looked at who were illicit and who were active in the food space. We try to take these who are actually also active in, in uh, alternative proteins and those who are not, but relevant are on a trajectory to go there. And the key message is, you know, do it and, uh, and speak about it, but speak transparently about it. And maybe there also the regulators should be um, asking for more transparency, what people do. And ultimately the investors will love it because uh, hedging that risk is, is a good thing. Yeah. And would you like to give an update on the progress being made by your portfolio companies at Blue Horizon? I don't want to go into specific companies. I just, uh, along the lines, what we, I'll focus on the growth strategy for now. And, you know, we've, we've done 78 investments uh, in the space uh, along the full value chain. But what I'm really happy about is that what Malta said, you know, these products are in the market. There are companies with real products in the market, and they have a huge impact on our ecosystem. They're potentially very, very good investments. And let me start in, in the beginning of, of the value chain. If you have a biological crop protection business where you literally through precision fermentation, teach the bug to eat the fungus, and you do it in a way that it's scalable and uh, would, would not have been possible um, a few years back. But that's the only alternative to chemistry today. Either you have a chemical product which you spray in the field, you kill everything, you goes into our groundwaters, you kill biodiversity, you harm the farm workers, and it's just very, very bad ultimately also for the end consumer. If you take a strawberry today in the US, you have so many residues of, I don't know how many, I think eight on average uh, of, of chemicals being sprayed on them. So the good news is these companies are developing fast. So what we've seen a few years back that you know, um, company was still trying to do everything in the value chain. It's now the value chain is breaking up. People are specializing on certain things and new fields come up because uh, what has not been possible 10 years ago, which was possible five years ago, but economically not viable. Now with the support of, um, of AI um, is, is suddenly helping. Um, and I think another aspect I could go on with ingredients and, you know, also for, for certain products which are in the market, but I think the ultimately what we see in the world today, which is so much change and risk and very, very scary things happening with the war, with the energy crisis, ultimately 
all of this will accelerate the transition to a more sustainable food system because the, the real price of water will kick in, the real price of uh, impact will kick in step by step. The externalities are not no longer that far away or hypothetical, they're real, they're becoming real. And food chains and, and value chains are becoming real. And we see uh, an adoption of companies in our portfolio to these uh, opportunities. And suddenly you do have a change that you bring uh, food production more local or regional. You do have an opportunity to process yellow peas, maybe then also not only in the US or in other parts and ship them around the world, process them to uh, in China and then into two bags, one of being isolated, the otherwise uh, the other bag being the fibers and you ship them back to the US and you do a burger out of it. That's not very sustainable. So suddenly what we see is opportunities to with tech to be scaling up certain processes in the industry, to be looking into uh, precision fermentation, to scale that up with existing partners, to do very specific fields adding to the whole industry. If you have an ingredient which you suddenly um, are able to provide to all the industry players, let me take cheese as an example. Now today, vegan cheese doesn't stretch. It doesn't stretch. It's not, you know, for me as a vegan, after many years, it's still one of these things. If I eat a pizza, you know, a nice stretching cheese would be great. So we do see a lot of companies coming up and especially one uh, with um, and from our portfolio where you have a product which you add to the cheese and then suddenly the cheese stretches. That's fantastic. Which company is that that has created the stretchy cheese? I'm afraid I can't tell you the name there because it's still a new product development, but you'll see it probably in the market in the next 12 to 18 months. And okay. also as an ingredient to the big, big, big companies. Oh, as an ingredient source. And if you think about where you're looking to invest in next, how is it being split between plant-based, fermentation-based and animal cell-based proteins? So for the growth strategy, as we clearly look into that and saying the companies must be profitable when we exit them, right? So there's a certain limit to certain technologies like uh, the, anim the, the cell-based meat. It's still sometime out, right? We believe that will take probably another eight years until it's at scale, eight to 10 years at scale at the same price point. Um, so the focus is really um, along the value chain on the food production, more on the fermentation and plant-based and hybrids between those two. Then I think as a big uh, seg segment of interest for us is the whole processing, the packaging, the um, you know going the full value chain from seed genetics all the way up to innovation and in, in, in the processing side. Um, and then there's a new field coming up where you literally have the same underlying technologies and you end up in biomaterials, for instance. So you do take waste, food waste, you have a precision fermentation process on it and suddenly you have a vegan leather replacement, uh, which is a fantastic product with great impact and also um, a variety of uh, application possibilities, which becomes scalable. So the three fields of the food the core technologies, I would say for us, it's less the, the, uh, the cultivated meat right now because of, you know, it's, uh, take a bit more time. But on the things which exist here, the second one is really looking at the food production system in itself from farm to processing, packaging all the way up. And then the third field we look into is, is biotechnology um, crossover to food. And of course, we also look at food as a medicine 
uh, increasingly uh, becoming a hot topic. Awesome, very good. And any future plans to collaborate further with new reports and with you, Malte, especially with the awareness phase and uh, getting government subsidies? Yes. Well, our our dialogue and collaboration with Blue Horizon obviously continues, and we are continuously exploring uh, new topics to uh, to dig into, and and we will decide, you know, on an annual basis what uh, what to do in terms of our our collaboration. But it's been amazing so far. It's it's a huge joy to work together with Blue Horizon. Obviously, great level of expertise and insight into the industry. So we. We, we very much appreciate and enjoy that that collaboration. So we want that to to continue, and um, yeah, and also I want to thank you and I also before we wrap up here, like the the, the job that you're doing with really uh, educating all of your listeners and and all of us in the industry on what's happening. I think it's it's fantastic. So uh, thanks also to you for uh, giving us this opportunity and for uh, for everything you do with your podcast. Thank you so much. And yeah, amazing report. And thank you for continuing the work in this space. It was a pleasure to have you both on. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you so much. It was great. Pleasure talking to you. And uh, watch out for our new reports and insights coming out soon. Will do. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. Food powers our world, but the system is broken we are facing a crisis. Our global population continues to grow, expected to reach 10 billion in 30 years. And we're emitting greenhouse gases at an unsustainable rate. Our global food system accounts for nearly one third of all emissions, half of that due to animal agriculture. We need innovation now. At Blue Horizon, we invest in the transition to a sustainable food system, funding disruptive companies at the intersection of biology, technology, and agriculture. What makes us unique is our double positive mission to achieve top-tier financial and impact returns. We set a high standard for the investments we make, quantifying impact with our proprietary impact framework. We're not only selective about what a company does, evaluating its impact on the planet, humans, and animals, but also how a company operates, assessing its environmental, social, and governance performance. Throughout the life cycle of our investments, we monitor impact and ESG, collaborating with founders and management teams to maximize their performance across both measures. We invest only in companies whose products or services make a net positive impact, considering factors like reduction of greenhouse gases, conservation of natural resources, promoting better health, fostering biodiversity, and replacing animal agriculture. We believe lasting impact is amplified by embracing leading ESG practices. Our goal is to deliver measurable and meaningful change for generations to come. Blue Horizon, the next generation impact investor.